So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, our topic today is going to be two different things. The first one is large purchases and bids. So this will be um, dollar thresholds over $25,000. Um, if you're looking for under that, we did have a presentation last month, um, and that is posted online um, for the under $25,000. You guys will have to excuse me. I'm slowly getting over a cold. So um, if I cough, I apologize. Uh, and then the second part of our presentation is going to be an in introduction to uniform guidance. This is something that's been talked about um, here and there for many years. Um, if you're in the scientific area, you probably have heard about this. Um, but uh, Maggie's going to come talk about that. We're going to do an intro um, about that, and then we'll have a more in-depth conversation about it next week as well. So purchases over $25,000 get everybody kind of excited. And, um, this is also an option for the people that are online. We have uh, Girl Scout cookies for the winners that can guess the right items or right numbers to these. So um, four purchases over $25,000. This is going to be for a fiscal year's time frame. What are the number of transactions we have for that? Any guesses? Last month, under 25,000 for this was over 42,000 transactions. Now, this is not reflective of this, do of this dollar amount. And online, if you guys have guesses, go ahead and type it in chat, and Sue will follow those out as well. Any guesses? 50,000? Way too high. <laughs> Keep going down, people. Nine? <laughs> <laughs> nine. Um, higher than nine. What was your guess? Fifteen hundred. Lower than fifteen hundred. You're gonna start auctioneering things off here pretty soon. Huh? Nine sixty-two. Closer, closer. Uh, anybody online? Huh? One hundred twenty-four. That's actually probably our closest one. Five hundred and fifty. So once we get into those high dollar amounts, we're doing. A lower number of purchases, which I mean, that's that's normal, that's expected. Uh, what do we think the dollar spend is for those? Last month for under twenty-five thousand was twenty-four point two million. This does not trend like this last number did. It does not go down; it goes up. Any guesses? Higher than 24 million. 42 million? Close. 50 million? 50 million? Pat is the winner for 53.9 million. That's just over 550 transactions. So it's good that that number's low, otherwise, that other number would be very, very high. And last one average spend per transaction. So last month under 25000 was $575 per transaction. This obviously is going to be a little bit higher because we're already starting at 25000 35000 Higher. Higher. Nine. Close. You don't qualify for cookies? <laughs> <laughs> 94. Close. We'll be doing 
98,244. So our numbers definitely jumped up for those, but <laughs> that's just something, good reference to have. So for the purchases um, between 25,000 and 149,999, uh, your first um, thing that you need to do is contract procurement for ser services for this area. Um, we will help you figure out the best way to get comparative quotes. Um, it'll definitely depend on um, the type of item or service that you guys are wanting to purchase. Um, we have the option to um, put it through our electronic bidding system, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here um, as we go along. Um, the other option is um, if the departments are comfortable, they can go out and get those comparative quotes on their own as well. But um, assistance is always available to be provided by procurement services. Um, if you are getting a quote, if the item is available through a prime supplier, then you only have to get one quote. So that's going to definitely save you some time. Um, the reason for that is those contracts have already been competitively bid. Um, and then just to also rephrase, um, a prime supplier, uh, that's the terminology that we use in procurement services, but you've probably also heard them referred to as preferred suppliers or contracted suppliers, sometimes cooperative suppliers. Um, those all kind of mean the same thing. So um, we also have a list of our prime suppliers on our website. So if you go to procurement.unl.edu under um, the faculty and staff area, there's a commodities suppliers listing, which will bring you to this page. Um, so we have a lot of different commodities that have been broken down. As you go through, you will see we have our lovely little ribbon here that denotes the um, prime supplier. So I am interested in apparel and accessories. I need to buy some shirts. Um, I go in there and I see that there are prime suppliers that are available. Um, has their contact information in there. And then I can also see who is the um, procurement services representative for that commodity. So if you have any questions, I can always reach out to Dustin um, and ask him about that specific area. Um, there are areas on here that are listed that do not have that um, ribbon. So um, with that, you would want to contact um, update our website. Roger just retired, if you guys haven't heard. Um, so Claudette Biscuit for audiovisual, she would be your contact. Um, so if you're needing to make a purchase over that $25,000 threshold limit, contact Claudette. She'll help you walk you through that process, um, determine what your best route is to do, uh, and then uh, go from there. So um, our last bullet on here is um, once you have all of your comparative quotes, then you want to um, attach those to the requisition. So in eShop, for example, you would attach the quote for the supplier that you have chosen to go with. You would put that in the external attachments. And then all of your other quotes for the other um, suppliers that you chose not to um, award to or purchase items from, you would put that in the internal attachments area. Um, the reason for that is we're able to see that if it's not attached to um, the order, then we're going to ask you for that when it's over that 
$5,000 threshold limit. So it's easier just to go ahead and have it out there because we're going to have, we're going to ask you for that later. Um, and then you have it there for auditing purposes in the future as well. Um, and if you guys have any questions as we go along, um, raise your hand or type it into the chat section as well. Um, and since we're on the topic of purchase orders, um, just a reminder that um, per Board of Regents policy, um, the, to commit university funds, it must be made um, through either a purchase order, um, purchasing card, which wouldn't apply in this instance um, due to the dollar threshold we're talking about today, um, or a contract. Um, so then we have the purchase of goods over the $150,000 threshold. Um, and this, uh, for this dollar threshold, we go back to Board of Regents policy. So they have set that dollar threshold as a limit for where we need to go out for competitive bidding. So once you have a purchase that's going to be um, around that dollar amount, then we need to go to competitive bidding. So there are two primary methods um, to do a formal bid for the competitive bidding. Um, first is based on um, a specific manufacturer and or model, um, model number, and this is what's called an invitation to bid or ITB. Um, ITBs are, that they are an award based on um, price and that so basically low bid would be your winner once all of the bidders have been deemed able to meet the specifications that have been asked for. Um, an example of when we would do an ITB for this um, type of instance could be um, when housing needs to purchase appliances for their dorms for the students. Um, there's two different ways that we could do that. The first way is if you have like a basic spec, so they don't really, um, they're not tied to a specific uh, manufacturer or model number, so um, then you could just provide, say you want a refrigerator that fits within a certain, um, certain depth dimensions, and that's probably going to be based off of the space that it's going in. Um, maybe the cubic feet that is in the fridge, maybe you want stainless ice maker in it. You have multiple manufacturers that you would um, be proposed and you would award to the lowest bidder. Um, the other option is you could name a manufacturer um, and you could even get as detailed as putting in a, a model number as long as um, there are multiple suppliers set of specifications or needs for consideration, and this would be done through a request for proposal or an RFP. Um, an RFP, um, through this process, you evaluate based on a predetermined set of criteria. Um, price is a consideration, but it is not um, the only consideration. So there's a set of evaluation criteria that is set up. Um, for the evaluation of the bid, and um, it can include a wide variety of different um, criteria. Um, some examples would be bidder's experience, 
um, equipment, uh, the equipment quality and te technical performance, um, cost effectiveness, uh, delivering installation, design. Okay, maybe I'm standing too close. All right, I'll stand back just a little bit. Let me know if it's still breaking up, sorry. Um, so with the, those different factors um, are all consideration um, for those, for an RFP. Um, RFPs are a good time to, are good to use when you're doing, say, a service or servicing goods combined, or it could be a just good as well. Um, a couple examples of uh, items that you would do for an RFP. A brand marketing strategy. So you're looking for a marketing firm to come in and um, provide marketing services for a specific project. Um, this would be a good opportunity for an RFP. Um, you have your set criteria. You um, talk about budget, but then also uh, have factors that go into the creativeness of um, the proposals. You can have people come in and do presentations. You take that into consideration. Evaluations. There's a lot of different um, in-person evaluations. There's a lot of different um, criteria, so it's not solely based on whoever bids the lowest amount. Um, another option would be furniture. So it's a good um, with furniture. Doing an RFP, you want to have the ability to um, go sit in a chair and to see the durability and comfort of the items that you are purchasing. You want to have some input on the overall style of item that you're purchasing. So through RFPs, you're given that flexibility versus just going um, for a little bit. So the process for a little bit. Um, first thing to take into consideration is time frame. Um, these do um, typically take, on average, two months. Um, it, this definitely could get a little bit shorter. It can also get much longer. Um, so that's something that you need to um, be mindful of. Um, part of the reason for the two-month um, time frame is per Board of Regents policy, they require a minimum of 15 calendar days that bid proposals are on the street. So from when we post them to when we close them, um, have to have 15 calendar days passed. Um, there are instances where you're going to want a longer time period for that. Um, for example, and I, I forgot to, I guess, introduce myself. So um, I do furniture buying, so that's a lot of my references that I, references that I have. Um, but we did, we did for the College of Business um, for their furniture, and due to sheer size of that building, we knew that 15 calendar days was not going to be enough time for our bidders to get the proposals together. Um, so we actually had the bid proposal out somewhere between six to eight weeks for the bidders to work on. So um, depending on the complexity of the bid, um, that two-month time frame could definitely increase. Um, for that particular bid, I think from start to finish, we were um, in evaluation for or the whole process took almost a year. Um, get from figuring out what they wanted to um, having awarded suppliers. So um, definitely be mindful of your time. Um, EBID is our electronic bidding system. Um, we have had it in place since 2012. Can I see 
All right, try this. Okay. Um, so, electronic bidding system since 2012. Um, through eBid, we are able to um, electronically post our bid um, opportunities to our suppliers. Um, our suppliers register the system, they, they select um, their commodity codes. Um, so if I, they can basically indicate that they're selling apparel or furniture or farm equipment. Um, and then when we have an opportunity that we put in our system for that, um, the system will actually automatically notify those suppliers that the opportunity is available. Um, and then through the system, um, we ask a series of questions. We get attachments through the system. Um, they put their pricing in. And then once the bid has closed, then we are able to get pricing in a nice spreadsheet where it has everybody's information in there. Um, we have all of our files that are electronic, so we share those typically with our valuation committees from our departments um, electronically. We can email them or we can send them through box. So um, by having eBid, it has streamlined our process um, greatly on our end, but also gives us the ability to better um, make our suppliers aware of opportunities. And so we get a lot more responses that way as well. Um, additionally, through the system, um, we have saved each year approximately $2 million by going through the bid process. So that is just um, having the competitiveness that is out there by going through a bid. We will find that um, you can get a quote from a supplier for something, and then once they know that they are competing about something, they are competing with somebody else for your business, they tend to sharpen their pencil a little bit more. So there's definitely savings found by going through a bid process. Um, since 2012, we have um, processed 743 bids. Uh, we have, on average, about 115 bids per year that our office does, um, and those can range from 150 up to multi-million dollar bids that we're processing through. We have about 12 users um, in the system from our office, and about four of them are high volume, so a large number of those bids are being processed um, by those four individuals. Uh, we also have about 4,000 suppliers that are registered in the system. One nice thing with that, um, if there is something that we don't typically buy very often on campus, but there's a supplier out there, there's a good chance that that supplier has registered in our system because they're hoping somewhere down the line there'll be an opportunity. So even if there's a um, something that you need to buy that maybe isn't at that high dollar threshold, but you're having a hard time finding a supplier, reach out to our office. Um, we can always look in our system and see if there's somebody that um, has registered as those types of items available. So it's a great resource um, for that as well. Um, evaluation committee. So as part of the RFP process, an evaluation committee um, is the one that goes through the more in-depth part of figuring out the selection criteria and how the awarded bidder will um, be chosen since it's not just solely based on the price. Um, so, as a member of the evaluation committee, you have to sign a non-conflict of interest form. Um, that basically is um, 
saying that you are not an investor in a potential bidder, you don't have family members that could be employed by that um, potential bidder, basically there's no financial or personal gain that you would have um, by you selecting any of the bidders that are um, available for the evaluation committee that you are on. Um, the other thing with the evaluation committee is the time commitment. Um, as a committee member, um, you would attend meetings um, as a group to discuss the bid, um, both prior to it going out and then afterwards in the evaluation process. Um, depending on the bid, you may have in-person evaluation, um, in-person evaluations that you do with um, the selected bidders. But you would also establish a score sheet um, with that criteria that we discussed earlier. Um, and then you would also be part of the final sign-off on the award recommendation. Um, and then the last thing, protest period. So once you make that award recommendation and we notify the suppliers um, who has been awarded the bid, uh, there is a seven-day, seven-calendar-day protest period that has to pass before we can um, either issue a purchase order or the university can do the final signature on a contract. So that goes back into your time frame up above. Um, we still have that protest period to be mindful of as well. Any questions with the bidding process? Oh, hold on, let Dustin come back and get you so everybody online can hear as well. What if um, the bid, a bid was done for a service and um, during the service, the department found that they needed um, something maybe added on or maybe need to change around what the winning bid was for? Is that an issue then that's going to come back on the department or what, <laughs> what would we do? Um, so it, it depends. Um, depending on where we're at in the bid process, so say the bid is still on the street and um, we can either issue an addendum changing that and it would also depend on what the change is as well. If it's a huge change that's gonna completely change the scope of the bid, then we might have to cancel the bid and go back out. Um, if it's something that could easily be added, um, either within the time frame that is still out there or we could also consider extending the time frame of the bid. Um, so say the bidders would need additional time um, to properly put a proposal or pricing together, um, then we, we would be able to extend the time frame then as well. Thank you. Beth? Sarah, let me add something to that as well. If there has already been a contract awarded through the bid process, uh, then we can make a change via addendum to the contract as well to add, uh, let's just say for cleaning services, if you wanted another wing of your building cleaned along with what they were already awarded, we can do a contract addendum to add that as well. Maggie? Hi. Okay. Um, I just wanted to add a comment to that, too, what Dustin said. I think, again, if the scope is within reason, but if the scope greatly changes, like this new service or whatever it is you're adding to the total value of the contract, is 
is taking it out into another realm entirely, it's going to just depend. It may need further review. Um, we'd have to do some assessment. It's not like it happens every day, but I want to prepare someone. Like, if you, instead of cleaning one building, you're going to clean the entire university, that's a scope change, right? So that wouldn't just be an addendum to an existing contract. It would be, you know, now, it doesn't mean that you know, we can go off in the weeds. I don't want to go too far, but does that clarify? Basically, whenever there is something that could change, always ask. Um, it never hurts to ask. Um, we, just, we will do our best to try and figure out a way to accomplish it. The worst thing is we would say no, but we always try to make sure and best find a solution for you. And so Maggie added, it all ties back to board policy and risk mitigation as well. So we're always mindful of those um, for whatever question that you guys have. So sometimes we, I mean, we have to make sure and we follow the rules. So sometimes our hands are tied and we can only get you so far. But good question. Sue, do you have any other one? All right, perfect. So next is sole source. Um, so, sole source is a good or service that can only be purchased from the supplier due to the specialized or unique characteristics. Um, and we did talk about this a little bit last month as well um, for the under 25. So, just a reminder, under 25,000 um, departments have the discretion to sign a sole source. Typically, it's the department head that is signing those. Once we get to that $25,000 threshold, um, we have other levels of signature authority that kick in. So um, from 25 up to the, the 149.999, it's the director of procurement services that has the capability to sign those. Um, and then we jump up to the 150 to just shy of 400. Um, and then those are, go to the vice chancellor for business and finance. And then if you have one that's over the 400,000 per board of regents policy, it goes to regents. Um, so, um, let's see here. For any of these dollar amounts, once you get over 25,000, procurement services are the ones that are responsible for routing for signatures. So, um, say you had something that was $250,000 um, and needed to be signed by the Vice Chancellor for Business and Finance. You would send that still to our department. Um, we would review it, embed it, and make sure that we're comfortable with it. Um, and then we would take it to the Vice Chancellor of Business and Finance. Um, we have additional documentation that we have to add to it um, and provide our supportive recommendations so that um, they are able to properly review it and see if they're comfortable with the signature for it. Um, for the Board of Regents approvals for over the $400,000, um, same process, but you also have to be mindful of Board of Regents meeting scheduling. Um, they only happen so many times per year, so you have to schedule around that. Um, there's also additional meetings that um, go on before that where they're vetting those different items. So say you have an October Board of Regents meeting that you're wanting to get a sole source approved at, we need to have that documentation to our office at least two months prior so that we can do our part um, to get it through the proper channels and then the other um, committees can also review that information. So please be mindful of that. Um, and then also a reminder, purchases that you are making from a prime supplier, so 
over the 25 or under the $25,000 limit, those do not require a sole source. So even though you only have one quote, if it is from a prime supplier, it's not a sole source. Those have already gone through the competitive bid process. Um, and then The quoting and bid process is still always there, and um, there is the possibility to be able to go through that depending on what you're needing. Um, we could still go through that process, especially depending on where you're at in your process, um, to avoid doing a sole source. So that's where RFPs are very handy. Um, say you're starting to do the beginning of your research on the products that you're wanting or the service that you're needing. Um, involve us very early on. We can go through that RFP process and find you that product that you need instead of you doing it on your own and then ending up at a sole source. So it's an option that is available for you guys to utilize. And then lastly, just some procurement resources that we have. Just to show you guys on the website. So we were here earlier. Um, so there's a link provided there for the um, prime suppliers and the commodities listing. Um, we also um, have our dollar threshold. So this is kind of a combination of what we talked about last month and this month. So we got our lower dollar thresholds here um, and the process steps to those. And then what we talked about today, um, our $2 thresholds um, and the formal bidding process. And then lastly, under our policies, you can find the sole source policy. It talks about sole source. Um, the dollar threshold signature authorities that we reviewed. Um, and then the Board of Regents sole source policy as well. So before we move on to uniform guidance, are there any additional questions at this time? Otherwise, we can close at the end. All right. Let's welcome Maggie to talk about uniform guidance. About the subject. Sorry, no, I do. I'm just sorry. This has to be a joke. <laughs> Am I on? Okay. Um, uniform guidance is something that I would never have known what it meant uh, two years ago, and I got a really fast introduction into it when I joined the university uh, from a really solid team here, but also all the other procurement organizations. Um, there are four, of which there are four across the university, not just the Lincoln campus. Med Center, UNO, and then our Kearney operations. So how many of you here even know what I'm talking about when I say uniform guidance? We got a couple from my, okay. So let's do the basics. And by the way, this is just an introduction to the topic. We're going to talk about it more next month. Part of the reason we're talking about it now and bringing it in alongside some of these other topics relevant to is the impact that it, it has and where it's coming from. Um, very simply, uniform guidance is, and we're going to refer to this uh, just for the fun of it. I'll try to say uniform guidance, but you know, spelling it out over and over gets a little 
challenging. It's a set of regulations, and if you really want to get specific, that's on here. So there's a federal government office of management and budget, which is often referred to as ONB. Welcome to the world of acronyms, right? And their, their guidance <coughs> literally says what it says right there, supersedes and streamlines all the other circulars that we put out on this topic. Don't memorize that, please. I think I'd rather you concern yourself with what the goal of uniform guidance is. And this has been coming for five years, maybe longer, which is how long it took them to write this very thick document, which is just a piece of the entire we often call it COFAR, CFR, which is, uh, I'm not even going to get that acronym right, but it represents these publications that dictate how we're supposed to operate when it comes to federal grant making resources. And, and frankly, it just means if you're using federal money in, small, in part or all, where somewhere in the organization is supplies. That's the way. And uniform guidance has many aspects to it. It is federal uniform guidance, and the university does receive federal funds, and many departments receive a lot, and some receive a little, and some receive pieces here and pieces there. So uniform guidance you're gonna see as I talk a little bit, we've determined and best practice that the universities we benchmark ourselves with across the Big 10 and across the United States through our affiliations all see this as, hey, you know, it's a broad, across-the-board update to our policies and guidelines to make sure that we're consistent. Because if we start to say, well, you've got this kind of a situation going on, and then this kind of a situation going on, and then the money might come from here, and it might come from here, then this applies. That's too confusing because the rules and requirements around procurement in higher education are already pretty complicated. So keeping in mind that the intent is to ensure that when any dollars are used against federal grant making or federal grant spending, they want to ensure that we're reducing the risk of waste, fraud, and abuse. That's probably not a bad thing on anything, is it? Really, if you were to think about it. So across the board, really, government is not overly complicated. But first, I want to tell you why you should care about it. Because it applies to everyone. When we look across the funding sources that go across various areas, if you're working for another department and your work has any impact on a grant-funded area, that can also be affected here as well. So we see that several key sections of uniform guidance directly impact the procurement process all across the university. And then all four campus procurement groups got together to make sure our approach was unified and made recommendations to board policy around procurement to ensure that it's consistent. So the bottom line is how we adopt this into our purchasing guidelines is going to be the same everywhere, which means you don't have to think, well, if I'm on this campus, it's one way. If I'm on that campus, it's another way. It's got to be consistent. And that's the way board policy is too. And it goes into effect. I think there's a proper phrase for this. I don't know if it's implements or initiates or whatever, but it basically takes immediate effect on the 1st of July. Um, we've been preparing for it and getting a lot of information for as long as I said earlier, close to five years. So there's been, hey, there's a 
this is coming, we think we're going to go this way, this might change, this might change. I'll talk about that on the next slide, but ultimately it will impact all of our guidelines on July 1st. So we've got this in front of the board, the next board meeting. What you're about to see is really the major key impact areas. I'm not going to share with you all the changes we've made to our policies because that would be, it would be not relevant to your role and responsibility. Basically, it's just so you understand these areas. We're going to guide you through them. Our instructions are already, maybe the phrase is bulletproof. The guidelines that we already have provided you incorporate these things that I'm talking about. So the first thing I want you to understand is the concept of a micro-purchase. According to the government, these are purchases where the aggregate dollar amount does not exceed $10,000. I don't want you to memorize $10,000. I don't want you to get hung up on that number because we've built rules around this criteria into our thresholds already. So the key here is just introducing the concept that whenever practical, micro-purchases will be distributed equitably among qualified suppliers. So that means we need to review them periodically to make sure that we're not, you know, is there any kind of overload going over here? Is there something, an opportunity where we should be bidding it? Because the key here is, since no competitive quotes are required, we have to determine the pricing is reasonable. So we always want to make sure that we're watching our dollars. It goes back to the general intent of uniform guidance, okay? The next one talks about what's called a small purchase. In my lifetime, I never would have thought I would say anything from $10,000 to $150,000 was a small purchase. But according to federal uniform guidance, the simplified acquisition threshold is currently $150,000. Now, when you're trying to give guidance to the entire United States, um, you know, you kind of have to make benchmarks. So in SAT, don't memorize that either. You're, you don't need to memorize it. Understand that we already have rules around purchases in the different thresholds that we've guided you on, but the procedures indicate, and we're in line with it, that pricing and or rate quotes need to be obtained from an adequate number of sources. So again, you're covered. I want you to understand that you're covered. A little bit of a no-brainer that you don't have to worry about competitive RFPs, um, we've given you some really good information about that. Um, I'll, I'm, next month, we're going to talk about sole sources because there's a big change in that. One of the biggest impact changes, actually, is that if you do work with contractors and you say, this might happen a lot in facilities or in some areas where our suppliers actually say, we know this really well right if you're getting ready to do an RFP. You don't really want to do that if you want them to be able to participate in that actual RFP. So this is where, again, remember that procurement would be your best friend, and we want to make sure that we help you ensure that you follow the appropriate rules so that it's fair for all participants. That's probably one of the biggest changes here at our university, that I think some departments have been accustomed. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, that great suppliers help us out. But the perception to federal uniform guidance is that might skew their ability to overwhelmingly win the business or even write the bid in such a way that gives them a favorable outcome. So we have to, we have to remember the entire intent of uniform guidance 
is to ensure waste is eliminated, we have to have fair and equitable procurement practices and drive down to the best overall cost. Is that when you communicate with the Oh, yes. Is that yes. We're understanding that. Yes, we are. And, and we are, yes. The answer is yes. Had some conversations about it, but keenly aware of that. We know there's an impact. I think the most important thing is um, understanding and going forward, too. You know, we do have an effective date for these things to take place, so I think that everyone can kind of get themselves ramped up. And, you know, if we run into any red flags or anything like that, we want to make sure that we make the, make the federal government aware of it, rather than not be the one that says, hey, wait a minute, we need more time. But I will say that at a recent Big Ten Academic Alliance meeting, I know that Iowa has been having some particular challenges just based on the structure of their organization and adopting some of the, this is a long time, just relevant to procurement. We've been talking about this, like I said, for a long time. So depending on like the scientific purchases, sole sources have some criteria against them that aren't as simplistic as they used to be. So we just have to make sure that we're touching every piece and making sure every department understands. But you're right, facilities will be impacted by that. I think furniture, um, not so much because of the processes we have in place. I, I guess to me the good news is we've got some really solid processes in our procurement operations already. And, and we think that by working closely with us and understanding that we've got your back, we're going to take care of you, okay? Because compliance is a really important part of our role. So I guess a big thing is if you can, use eShop. Um, now, you may not personally know about that, and in the facilities world, we haven't begun to branch into eShop on this campus as much as we might down the road. Um, I know that I, I'm not here to lecture anyone on standard utilization of any procurement system, but I can tell you that our Jagger system over SAP alone offers numerous benefits about compliance and approvals and ensures that things go through a different approval routing process than we get, we don't get out of our financial record management system, which is SAP. So there are other campuses and, and us included, we need to do our best to drive as many transactions through eShop as possible to ensure compliance. Um, eShop also helps us monitor them more effectively. Um, and, and it really does provide better transparency to a variety of aspects of approvals and and just ensuring compliance within criteria. So from a reporting perspective, we are planning more information sharing, newsletters, some training in eShop specifically, and then some seminars that we want to be putting out there to help you and your teams. So I think we'll see some things in the super user group. We've been talking about actually recording and we're working on recording some documents that are going to be on our website. We've got like a two-pager on uniform guidance, what you need to know, what you, you know, what you don't have to worry about. And then certain specific areas will probably worry about this code, this subsection more than others will worry about that. It's just a matter of remember that if you work with us, we're going to have you taken care of with the guidelines that we have. So. Um, anything you think, if you'd like to come speak to anyone in your group, um, 
we're happy to help educate. Um, the, the good thing about uniform guidance, I think, is it's, uh, well, it's been long overdue. And uh, actually, I think in the long run, it enhances the procurement's ability to drive more efficiency and cost savings to the organization in general anyway. So um, largely, we're in line with it. So all of our thresholds are consistent with what the policy says, so we haven't had to make any changes, luckily. So that would be it for me, questions overall. And I know you've asked them within in the body of group. Anybody online with questions? Okay. We are going to talk about it next month, and we're going to talk about it in context of, I don't want to just say scientific sourcing, but that's a category where a lot of this comes up, is when you have very specific plans, even facilities, we should, you know, address some needs there as well. Um, so we will talk more about uniform guidance, and we'll be having some publications coming out on that as well need to know. Heavy topic, I know. It's like, how do you make it more fun? I, it's hard to make too many jokes about uniform guidance because it's very serious stuff. So I, uh, but like I said, I, I wouldn't even know what is that. I remember when I was told, hey, you gotta worry about this coming up. And this was two years ago. And I was like, what is this? worried about something that's going to happen two years from now? And I was like, is it going to be a hurricane? You know? <laughs> But um, I think preparedness of our university and all the four campuses working together has been really beneficial. How about big questions, large bids? Anybody here do large bids? Of course, facilities. Yeah, that's all you do. <laughs> if you've got a project in the wings or you're wondering about, you know, I think that would be the message we would hope you'd come away from this with. Um, you never know, it's Easter famine and procurement. I think we've got like seven or eight going right now, don't we, Sue? Bits? Yeah. And then another time we might only have one going on through the house. But when they were talking about bid protests earlier, I don't know if anybody here has ever been through a bid protest or you read the paper. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there you go. So because we are a public institution, records are open for so we, we try to we try to reverse engineer the process as much as possible while you're going through it to make sure that we've got all the bases covered. Um, and I more than I am so appreciative of this team that knows what they're doing. So they will guide you through it. I can assure you of that. Okay. Anything else? We're good. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate the participation. Did you have anything to add, Dustin? I missed the first part. So. All right. Thank you, everyone. Glad you're here. Thank you.